Well, it's great to be with you again, and great to have this critical subject before us of praying, praying for revival, praying for God to arise, praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. I was brought up in a home where both of my parents were prayer warriors, and it wasn't, I just thought everybody's home was that way. But my father was particularly a man who knew how to take hold of God. And my mother was a secret prayer warrior who didn't say quite as much to us verbally, but she knew how to take hold of herself and discipline herself to pray. And one of the greatest problems today in the church, one of the greatest problems in our own lives, is that we don't know how to do either. For the most part. So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about taking hold of yourself in prayer and taking hold of God. And turn with me, please, to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64. 64, I'm going to just read verses 6 through 9. But notice, notice the expression in verse 7, none there's none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. God wants to be taken hold of. Verses 6 through 9. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou art potter, and we are all the work of thy hand. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. And then turn with me, please, to James 5. James 5. Verses 16 through 18. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly. In the original King James Version, there's a marginal note that says, or he prayed in his prayers. He truly prayed in his prayers. We can have a lot of prayerless praying. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, prayed in his prayer again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Great God of heaven, help us in this address to utter a few words, to stammer just a little about the beauty and the glory of taking hold of thee in prayer and taking hold of ourselves 
and to stress that prayer is the most wonderful gift that we can have here on earth in and through Jesus Christ, more valuable than all the possessions of this world. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my dad used to say to me as a boy that the greatest problem outside of the church was its pagan worldliness, and the greatest problem inside the church was the palpable prayerlessness. And when I studied for my PhD at Westminster, I read hundreds of sermons of the Reformers and the Puritans, and I was amazed, actually, at how little they were different from the kinds of sermons that solid Reformed preachers proclaim today. And I wrestled for a long time with this question. What is the difference between their day and ours? Why why did they see such times of revival and we do not? Is it just because of the sovereignty of God? For all revivals connected with the Spirit's sovereignty, of course. But after a while, I came to this conclusion. They were wrestlers in prayer. They did not put prayer as an appendix at the end of their life. But prayer was their life. It was their life. And that's the problem that we face, I face, you face so often today. We're busy with 10,000 good things. But are we prayer warriors at the throne of grace? Now it's easy, of course, like no subject more easy to make people feel guilty about than when you talk about prayer. My mother used to pray a couple hours a day. When she was 80 years old, I asked her, Mother, if you had to live your life over again, what would you do differently? And she said right away, Oh, honey, I'd pray more. <laughs> pray more? I mean, you try praying two hours a day. Or don't try because you'll fall flat on your face. But that's what she did. She would go, if, if children were arguing, for example, she'd go off into a side room and we knew she was going to pray. But she had her stated times of prayer. We'd come down for breakfast and we knew, we knew as we walked past the living room, she'd be on her knees there in the shadows in the living room and we, we would tiptoe past the room to go uh, pour our cereal and start our breakfast until she would join us. She was a prayer warrior. And we knew she was lifting up. She never had to tell us every one of our names every day at the throne of grace. Well, that's the way the Reformers and the Puritans live their lives. Just two quick examples. Luther prayed an average of two hours a day. One day he said to his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, tomorrow... I have so much to do, I need to spend an extra hour in prayer. (laughs) What do you do do when you have so much to do? Prayer time shrinks. Theirs expanded, you see. But more importantly than the time, Melanchthon overheard Luther once praying in secret. And you know Luther never 
When he prayed in secret, he never prayed silently. He always prayed out loud. He said for two reasons. Number one, my mind doesn't wander as quickly when I pray aloud. And number two, I want even the devil to hear me because he's already a defeated foe. And Philip Melanchthon felt it was too sacred to stand there and wait till Luther was done. So he pulled back and he went home and he wrote these words. Gracious God, what faith, what spirit, what reverence, and yet with what holy familiarity did Master Martin pray? See, that's it. A holy reverence, a holy familiarity that takes hold of God, takes hold of myself, and cries out to God, adoring Him, confessing sin, thanking Him, supplicating Him. The Reformers were people of prayer. Second example, John Welsh, son-in-law of John Knox. His wife wrote after he died, don't even begin to try this, that he prayed seven hours a day. She said he kept his robe close to his bed because a night seldom passed when he did not rise to commune with his God in a private room. And she would often get up out of distress because... <laughs> Northern Scotland rooms were cold in the winter. And she'd say, through the closed door, she didn't dare open it. She said it was too sacred. She'd say, John, honey, won't you come back to bed? And he'd, he'd, he'd say, back through the closed door. Oh, my dear, I have 3,000 souls to care for. That was the size of his congregation. And I know not how it is with many of them. And so he'd be praying for them one by one in the middle of the night. I mean... We can't even come close to this. This is the difference. We live in a prayerless age, even when we pray in our prayers, for the most part. Listen to Thomas Brooks talk about prayer. Oh, how often, Christians, has not God kissed you at the beginning of your prayer and spoken peace to you in the midst of your prayer and filled you with joy and assurance upon the close of your prayer? Do we know that life of communion with God in prayer? I think we all have to say we come far short. Joseph Align, after he died, his wife wrote about his life. She said this, At the time of his health, he rose constantly at or before four o'clock in the morning and on the Sabbath sooner. He would be much trouble if he heard blacksmiths or shoemakers or tradesmen at work at their trades before he was in his prayers with God, saying to me, how this noise shames me. Doth not my master deserve more than theirs? From four till eight, he spent in prayer, holy contemplation, singing of psalms, which he much delighted in, and did daily practice alone as well as in his family. And you see, our problem now with prayerless praying is that we always think we're going to repair our shattered prayer life with just a little more resolve. Or maybe after you hear a few more talks this weekend, you're going to go back and you're, you're going to pray. But nothing comes of it. Or maybe for a week, and then it fades away. How do you, how do you grapple with that problem? How do you really make a change? How do you really put prayer in the front of your life? Well, it does take discipline. 
You need to take hold of yourself and you need to take hold of God. You need to be convicted of the importance of it, the priority of it, and you need to put it into action. Now, it doesn't mean that they always found prayer easy. Listen to Thomas Adams, another Puritan. I pray faintly and with reserve, sometimes merely to quiet conscience, for present case, almost wishing not to be heard. Prayer and other spiritual exercises can become a weariness to me, a task, a force upon my nature. I am too well pleased with pretenses for omitting them, but when they are over, I often feel myself at ease, as it were, like the removal of a burden. Whenever I attempt to pray for others, I am soon made sensible I do it in a cold, heartless manner, a plain indication that love is not at the bottom. It is an awful moment when the soul meets God in private to stand the test of his all-searching eye. So, yes, they were prayer warriors. But yes, they also struggled with prayer just like you and I do. But they persevered in it until they broke through. There's an old Scottish expression. We must pray until we pray through and lay hold of the ear of the Lord of Sabaoth. So, here I suggest to you is the fundamental answer. Taking hold of yourself like Elijah in James 5 and taking hold of God like God himself complained his Israel did not do in Isaiah 64 verse 7. Now how do you do those two things? Well, I have some suggestions for you. And I'm supposed to weave these in with, with uh, the ministries that I've been involved with by God's grace in Reformation Heritage Books and the Puritan Reformed Seminary. Now, that's a very dangerous assignment that Stephen gave me because I want to say from the outset, as I try to weave these things in according to what he says, please remember, I'm as prayerless as you are by nature, and we're all in this together, and we all need to help each other but when I tell a few stories about what God has done, this is for one purpose only, solely Deo Gloria, because he intervenes, because he gives prayer. He's a prayer giving, a prayer hearing, a prayer answering, a prayer delighting God. And so it's completely, 100% for the glory of God. Well, I want to give you six or seven ways then to take hold of yourself. The first way, and then I'll give you three or four ways to take hold of God. The first way to take hold of yourself is to remember the value of prayer. Remember the value of prayer. William Bridge said, A praying man can never be very miserable, whatever his condition be. For he has the ear of God, the spirit within to indict, a friend in heaven to present, and God himself to receive his desires. For it is a mercy to pray, even though I never receive the mercy prayed for. Just the act of praying, just the act of communing with God, is a great mercy. My dad used to always say that to us kids. He'd say, remember, all good relationships in life are two-way street." And our relationship with God has to be a two-way street. God comes down to us through his word. We go back to him through prayer. If you don't pray, 
You see, the word will come one way, but it won't benefit you much if you don't have a two-way communication. Puritans actually said, what you've got to do is you've got to receive the word, comes down to you, then to have good communication, you've got to meditate on the word, because meditation they call the halfway house between scripture reading and prayer, and then you go back up in prayer. Read, meditate, pray, read, meditate, pray. This is the way to have a close and intimate life with God, to realize the value of prayer. Now, think about that. If you're a true Christian, you you can identify with this at least to some point, can't you? There's been times in your life you were wrestling with problems. You went to God in prayer. Sometimes you didn't have much freedom in prayer. But there have been times you did have freedom in prayer. And when you got off your knees, even though the problems and circumstances had not changed one iota, you felt a sweetness and a calm inside of you, didn't you? It was not of your making. It was really Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. You see, when we stay our mind, when we fix our minds on God, and we commune with him in prayer, and we realize the value of prayer, the value of communing with him, and that communion is real and heartfelt, That in itself is an answer, even though the problem is not answered. There's a beauty, there's a sweetness in prayer, taking everything to God in prayer, in approaching God as if he knew nothing about me, yet knowing he knows everything about me, and pouring out my soul before him that is worth more than anything you can ever possess in this world. That's another lesson my dad taught me. I remember when I was nine years old. He took out his wallet one time. He laid some money on, on, on his bed and brought me into the bedroom, actually, and sat me down, and he said, do you know what the difference is between a believer and an unbeliever? And I always said no to every question he asked because I always had it wrong anyway. <laughs> and he said, a believer always has a place to go. A believer always has a place to go. And then he said, you see this money here? He said, if you had all the money in the world, it wouldn't be as valuable as having an open throne of grace. And God has said, you can come to him anytime, son. Anytime. 24-7, 365. Go to him. Go to him in prayer. It's the most valuable thing you can do on this earth to worship God in prayer. So, you see... Here begins the problem. If we don't realize the value of prayer, just the value of actually communing with God, if we only think God is there to give us answers when we're in trouble, and we don't understand the relationship and the importance of that relationship through prayer, we'll never, we'll never change our prayer life very much. You've got to remember the value of prayer. Now, if prayer is valuable in itself, though you don't receive an answer upon a particular petition, how much more precious are answered petitions? Isn't some of your sweetest spiritual experience contained in this that God answered your prayer without the shadow of a doubt? You, you, you can't forget that. You prayed and God came. 
and did wonders. And it made, it made your relationship with him doubly real. Your assurance got a huge boost in it because you knew this was the Lord. You could say with John as they were going back to shore to that stranger who was calling them from the shore, as John said to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. You see, when you get a direct answer of prayer from God that is so beyond the pale of all human reasoning, and you know it's the Lord, oh, there's a sweetness there that you can't put into words. And sometimes, well, quite often actually, the Lord does more than you answer your prayer. He does exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. And that's incredible. Like Bishop Joseph Hall said, good prayers never come weeping back. I either receive what I was asking for, or I receive what I should have been asking for in the first place, which is usually bigger and better. Our God's a great God. Bring great petitions to a great king. And we, we've experienced that in, in these two ministries that God has been gracious to me uh, to, to help establish on, on many occasions. I just want to mention one thing to you about the three, the three buildings, the two buildings we put up. This is a material thing, but I, I want you to see the sweetness of it for the seminary. And then the one building we purchased just a few years ago for Reformation Heritage books. Both ministries, by the way, started out about 20, 28, 29 years ago. And we felt burdened, both of them, burdened for the church that the theological students would have a thoroughly sound education in the Grand Rapids area. And we were compelled to do that, actually, by a new denomination that was, was compelled to be formed. And we had four students the first year. And so they were in our house, and um, as well as Reformation Heritage books, as well as my 20,000 books. Uh, <laughs> the only room that wasn't impacted was our, was our bedroom. And uh, books were everywhere. And, of course, we soon outgrew that. And then we had to build our, well, we got a home, a little home. And then the, actually what happened was the, uh, Reformation Heritage books were in, was in the garage. We remodeled the garage of the home. And the lecture room was also in the garage. So if customers came for books, we had to say, nope, there's a lecture going now. You've got to come back at such and such a time. I mean, it was really primitive. But after we got to be about 25, 30 students, after 10 years or so, then we said, well, we need, we need a building. Well, we decided to put up a 20,000 square foot building. We couldn't find anything. Here's God's wonderful answer to prayer. As we waited on him, we looked all around for 25 miles around in different directions, and, uh, or the greater metropolitan Grand Rapids area, maybe not quite 25. And then we settled on a property that suddenly opened up right next door. To us, So I walk 190 feet to work because my home is behind the old seminary little house that now has been plowed under, and now we have dorms there. And uh, God just wonderfully answered prayer. So the, mil the building that was going up was $3 million, which gave me a, shook me in my boots. I know that sounds pretty small to a, a place like this, but $3 million in our circles was huge. 
And so we just prayed and prayed that God would supply. And we went forward looking to him. And we had a secretary, a male secretary, who kept praying in our normal, every day, you see, we begin with prayer at 9.45 to 10 o'clock. We have a prayer time where all the staff, seminary, Reformation Heritage books come together and we pray. We believe it's important. Now, this one secretary just kept praying that the whole building would be paid for by the day of dedication. Well, that was so ridiculous that I just pulled him aside at one point and I said, you know, there's a thing in the Bible about Gideon putting out his fleece. You, you remember that story? But I said, now we have the whole canon. We have to be careful to put out fleeces before God like that. So I think it's better just pray that God will help supply, but don't, don't give him a target deadline. And, and the young man said to me, yeah, but I'm really convinced God, God's going to do this. And Well, I gave up trying to correct him. He just kept doing it all the way to the end. Well, the evening of dedication, there was 2.88 million and there was 120,000 to go. And I was greeting people as they came through the door. Uh, 725, Sinclair Ferguson going to dedicate the, the building. And uh, a lady comes up to me and says, I want to see you in your study just for a moment. So my study was right there, walked in there. She hands me a piece of paper. She says, you might need this. She turns around and walks away. I open it up. It's a check, 120000 Exactly. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but I did not, I did not, I did not just get on my knees. I actually fell. I just, I just collapsed and I just wept because I realized this is God putting his fingerprint on this building. This is God's answer to prayer. He's saying to us, this is not your building. This is not anyone else's building. This is not the fundraiser's building. This is my building. And so there were 300 some people there that night, and the chapel was full, and people were sitting upstairs. And when it came time for me to stand up and to, to explain the needs, the financial needs for the offering, I just stood up and said, we don't need to take a collection tonight because this entire building is paid for. And there was, there was this, uh, you could hear 300 people suck in their breath, and then, like, it was just like, this is a God thing. And everyone recognized it. And God got all the glory. See, that's the beauty of answered prayer. God always gets all the glory. So then 10 years later, uh, I, I see, I'm absolutely convinced we never have to put up another building. No way. I mean, if we ever had 75 students, I told somebody, that would be amazing because we're, we're very conservative and things. And well, God blessed the seminary. It kept growing and got up to about 200 students and we had to put up another building. Well, 3.6 million because we decided to put a basement underneath this building. Connect the two buildings together. And in my unbelief, I can't believe I actually did this, but I did. I said to this at prayer time, I said, now God doesn't usually do two miracles in a row. So <laughs> let's not expect God to have this entire building paid for by the night of dedication. Uh, it's embarrassing I said that, but I, I said that. And on Wednesday, dedication was on Friday. On Wednesday, someone called me up and said, how much more do you have to go in the building? And actually, we had 3.54 million at that point. So we only had 60,000 to go. 
And the person said, well, what's your operation fund looking like? And I said, well, there's nothing in it. Everyone's giving to the building. How are you going to pay your employees next week? I said, I don't know. Well, how much do you need to pay your employees for another month? I said, well, 65000 Oh, you really need 125000 the person said. And I was getting a little bit hopeful at that point. And then the person said, oh, well, I don't have that kind of money loose right now, so I'll, um, I'll give you a call sometime next week and let you, let you know what I can give. I said, thank you very much. Four hours later, that person called back and said, I was able to loosen up some of my stocks. I have... A, I have a check of $125,000 in the mail to you. You should receive it by Friday. We got it at Friday at 3.30, four hours before dedication. I mean, this is, again, like God just saying, this building's mine. This second building's mine. The other big building we had to, we had to purchase is we just ran out of space in Reformation Heritage books because that God has been developing Reformation Heritage books and blessing the efforts. And it went from my little hobby, and now it's a, it, it's, it's a business of selling millions of dollars of books a year. And we just couldn't fit it into the seminary building anymore. We looked around. We couldn't find anything. And then finally, our real estate agent came to us Labor Day weekend, a year, uh, a year and a third ago, and said, uh, I got the perfect building for you. 1.85 million, 44,000 square feet. It was a paint store. It's got cement floors. It can hold up all the books everywhere. It's exactly what you need. A, a great big warehouse for all the sales. You can, you can renovate the front building for a store. We went there, and it was absolutely perfect. So we called emergency meeting that night, RHB meeting, a, a PRTS meeting, Unanimous on both boards. Go get that building. Offer them $1.8 million. We offered $1.8 million, and we were feeling really good about it and felt like this was the hand of God. And then the next day, we heard that someone came right behind us and offered more. And that there was another man coming the following Tuesday. They were going to open bids the following Tuesday evening already. And a 95-year-old widow, by the way, owned this building. And... Uh, that man had already said, the description of the building is perfect for my business. I will far outbid what they're asking for or, or what anyone will give. I want this building. So I got the staff together. I said, the only thing we can do is to pray. We've been looking and looking for half a year. We can't stay in this building anymore. We're out of space. So I prayed that this woman would see the name Reformation Heritage Books and that somehow she would have affinity with the Reformed faith, would recognize it's a Christian name and would say, no matter how much anyone gives, I want them in this building. Tuesday morning, we got a phone call that we got the building. And I said, well, that can't be. The bids aren't going open to Tuesday evening. What do you mean we got the building? It was from their real estate agent. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. Your bid came in, and over the holidays, she didn't know it. And then on Tuesday morning, we showed it to her, and she saw your name, Reformation Heritage Books. She said, well, I married my husband 70 years ago, and he was Reformed. I've been in Reformed churches ever since, and I want them to have this building cancel all of the bids. <laughs> so the guy who was going to come in the afternoon, he was going to really go way beyond us. He never got a chance. And she accepted him as number one if, our, for some reason, our, our thing would, would fold. But, of course, it didn't fold. We got the building. We put some renovations into it. 
And by the grace of God, we had no money because RHB is nonprofit. But by the grace of God, uh, that money was $2.7 million all total with the renovations. It was raised in two weeks. God's people just came around. People who really love reform books came around and they just gave money to it. And that prayer was an answer on top of the other prayer. We then went to sign for the building. And the old lady was in one room. We were in another. And uh, there was like seven of us in, in, the, in one side and like eight people on the other side. And uh, I didn't like this. I wanted to meet this lady. What, what are we doing? This? Well, that's the way they do business, I guess, these days. You know, you sign in different rooms. I said, can I meet her? Well, I'll go ask her. So they went to ask her. Yes, she'd love to meet you. So I came in. And when I saw this woman, and she told me how she loved it that we were in this building and that she wanted us in this building. I just couldn't help but pray. So there's like 15 guys around all from the world. I just said, do you mind if we pray? And she goes, no. And I, I prayed and she said, thank you so, so much. I've done so much business in my life and I've never, ever done business in conjunction with a prayer. You see, prayer, 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 prayer is interfaced through all of this, you see. And, and, and you have your own story. Remember the value of prayer. This is just physical buildings. But there's thousands of things, you see, where you see the hand of God every day. Now, one day, one day in the 28 years, PRTS, we didn't have money to pay our employees the operating fund is very, we always say it's like, it's like the woman with a little bit of oil. Every morning she gets up, there's just a little bit of oil there. That's what it's like in a nonprofit ministry. But one day we just didn't have any oil. So I had to actually tell the employees, let's go to prayer, but I can't pay you today. So we went to prayer. The next day there was a check for $50,000, which at that time was just enough to pay everyone. One day, that's the faithfulness of our God. Number two, maintain the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. John Bunyan said you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer has got to be the first thing of what we do. And that's one of our problems as well, isn't it? We're always trying to solve problems ourselves. And then when we come to our, our dead end, then we go to prayer. That's not the way it should be. When I was 25 years old, I was ordained into the ministry in Sioux Center, Iowa, and a minister, fellow minister, came to see me. He was a 75-year-old, very experienced, godly pastor. And I said to him, can you please take some time now and tell me what lessons you've learned in your whole ministry that you could pass on to a newly ordained minister? And he said, I can say it in one sentence. Don't ever undertake anything in the ministry, ever. Even if you've done it 50, 100 times before, without praying first, without praying first for God's blessing on it. And what wise advice that is. You know, we had a woman bookpacker in Reformation Heritage Books for 15 years. She's still alive. She's about 85 now. She was uh, retired, actually, when she came to me. And uh, she packed thousands and thousands and thousands of packages of books and when she retired, she finally told me something I never knew. She said, every single package, when I got the books out 
and as I laid them on the table, I started to wrap them up. I prayed for the people that would receive them, that it would be blessed to their soul. Every single package. Always pray first. Always pray first. Number three, you take hold of yourself, not, not only by recognizing the value of prayer and the priority of prayer, but speak with sincerity in prayer. I mentioned two hours, seven hours. I'm not suggesting you, you try to pray that long. But what I am suggesting is that prayer is not a five-minute-a-day thing. What would you think if I said to you, I have a wonderful relationship with my wife. By the way, I talk to her five minutes a day. You say, yeah, something's wrong there. You see, you can't have an intimate relationship with God when you just have one stated prayer time, five minutes a day, and for the rest of the day, you don't even think about him. But what's most important of all is in the prayers that we do engage in, that we are utterly sincere in those prayers. We have to take hold of ourselves. As we go to prayer, we need to remember to whom we're praying. Our Father, our intimate Father, which art in heaven, our exalted Father. So we come with reverence. We come with sincerity. Listen to Thomas Brooks. God doesn't look at the elegancy of your prayers to see how neat they are, the geometry of your prayers to see how long they are, the arithmetic of your prayers to see how many they are, or the music of your prayers, or at the sweetness of your voice, or at the logic of your prayers, but he looks at the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. The true mother in Solomon's day would not have the child divided, as God loves a broken and a contrite heart in prayer to him, so he hates a divided heart. So when we go to prayer, we need to discipline ourselves in this. I am coming before the God of the universe. I deserve nothing but death and hell. I have to remember in whose presence I am and come with utmost sincerity. Number four, continue to cultivate an ongoing spirit of prayer. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says. Now that's foundational. That's foundational to a close life with God. It's not just the stated time of prayer before each meal or after each meal or when you get up in the morning or when you go to bed at night. A prayer life is something that goes out to God many, many times a day, maybe in short little pungent petitions. Nehemiah is a wonderful example there. Oh Lord, remember me for good. He just springs these prayers up to heaven quickly in the middle of his day, in the middle of his need. That's what we should do. That's what a continual spirit of prayer is. There was a group of ministers, uh, 19th century, they met once a month to, to grapple with a theological question. John Newton was among them, Thomas Scott. Actually, notes were made of these discussions. Banner True Trust published it. And one of the discussion questions was, what does Paul mean when he says pray without ceasing? Because we've got to do our work. We've got other duties. And the ministers didn't have a very good answer. And so when the, the maid came by to, to give them refreshments, one of them just simply asked her. They said, Mary, can, can you tell us what it means to pray without ceasing? Oh, she said, sirs, that's, yeah, that's not really difficult. 
When I get up in the morning and I dress myself, I say, Lord, clothe me with Christ's righteousness today. When I came down and dusted the furniture, I said, Lord, take away all the dirt and filth in my heart today. And I just kind of pray short prayers like that. When I gave you your food, I was really praying in my heart, Lord, feed me with Christ, who is the water of life and, and, and the bread of my soul. And so I just kind of pray my way through the day like that, she said. And they said, that's it. That's it. You see, when you're backsliding, when you're distant from God, isn't it true? All those darting prayers, Puritans called those occasional prayers, darting prayers, not at your deliberate stated times of prayer, they disappear, don't they? Because your relationship with God is on ice. It's frozen. But when your relationship with God is alive and vibrant, you see, then these prayers are multiplied. Lord, help me with this. Lord, bless me there. Lord, help me evangelize this person I'm about to meet. You just, just little prayers that go up. This continual spirit of prayer. And we discipline ourselves. When we take these impulses to pray and always allow the freedom to do so to our own conscience. See, when you have the least impulse to pray, pray. I, I learned that, uh, it's embarrassing to say it, but I was preparing a sermon one time and, you know, once in a while, <laughs> when you're preparing a sermon, it doesn't happen every day. You get a whole flurry of thoughts that come into your mind and you can't get them down quick enough. And you feel like it's a little bit of the unction of the Spirit, and you're grateful for it. Well, I, I was in one of those stages where I was just typing as fast as I could. But because these thoughts were coming, and they seemed to be God-centered, and my soul was lifted up, I also felt an impulse to pray, but I resisted. I said, no, Lord, I've, I've got to get these thoughts down first. And after I got them down, I lost the impulse to pray. And it taught me something very powerful. This is like 20 years ago. Whenever you have the least impulse to pray... Pray. It's more important than what you get down. It's more important than what you're doing. Pray while you're driving. Pray while you're even in the midst of talking to people sometimes. Little darting prayers. Develop a habit of praying without ceasing. Five, you take hold of yourself by working towards organization in prayer. Organization. We are to be intercessors for others. And one of the greatest sins of ministers is I'm going to pray for you, and then we don't. No. Organize your prayer life. Have people that you're going to pray for every day, every week, every month, or whatever. I had a friend in South Africa who had just this incredible list. He spent 45 minutes every morning praying for people he's going to pray for every day, and then once a week, and then once a month. It was beautiful. Or pray with people right away. Wherever you are, maybe you have to step outside of a crowd for a moment. That's okay. Somebody says, well, I have this need. You say, oh, I'll pray for you. No, no, just go pray right away. Pray, pray, pray. It's always the priority. Take hold of yourself. And then, finally, number uh, six. Keep a biblical balance in prayer. We try to teach our children the Acts formula. Adoration, you adore God. Tell him how wonderful he is. Confession, C, confess your sins. T, thanksgiving, so many things to be thankful for. S, supplications, then pour out your needs. The Acts formula is very helpful for maintaining balance in prayer. 
Well, what about taking hold of God in prayer? This goes even deeper. This is, in some ways, more important. Uh, four, four things. Number one, plead God's promises in prayer. Plead God's promises in prayer. God wants his own handwriting to come back to him. When you show God his own handwriting, you bring God his own promises. You are actually taking hold of God. You're saying, do as thou hast said, Lord. In my study, right behind my chair, I've got maybe 10 books of the prayers of our forefathers. If I get a little discouraged sometimes with my own prayers or just feel a little lackluster spiritually inside, I'll just pull out one of those books and just open and just start reading. And the prayers of these old divines, prayers of Spurgeon, prayers of Bickersteth, they revive my soul. But what I often notice is that more than one half of their prayer is simply Scripture. Scripture going back to God. God bringing his people to the Scriptures and his people bringing the Scriptures back to God. Puritan John Trapp put it this way. Promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be importuned with in his own words. To be sued upon by his own bond. For prayer is a putting of God's promises into suit. And it is no arrogancy nor presumption or burden to God to be sued by his own promises. For then we take hold of God, which is his delight. Such prayers will deny the Lord day and night. He can as little deny them as he can deny himself. Now what that means, of course, is that we've got to be in the Word. We've got to be memorizing the Word. We've got to be thinking about the Word. The Word has to fill us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, flow, the mouth flows over. So the mouth, the mouth speaketh. So what you've got to do, you see, is you've got to be often in the Word, God speaking to you, and then spontaneously you bring that Word back to God, especially His promises. Example. Let's say today you're really discouraged. Some problems are coming upon you. You can't understand God's ways. You're wallowing in some degree of unbelief. But you remember the promise. All things work together for good to those that love God. And so you say, Lord, I'm discouraged, but thou art almighty. Thou hast promised all things work together. I can't see it, Lord, but I believe thee. I believe thy word. Now, please, Lord, work it all out so it all works together for good. You plead God's promises. That's how to pray. And second, you look to the glorious Trinity in prayer. This is a beautiful thing. Ephesians 2.18 puts it this way. For through Christ Jesus, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. The whole Trinity is involved in prayer. It's a glorious thing. I like to picture it as, as kind of a circle if you follow my hand here, prayer, your true prayer is decreed by God from all eternity, by the Father. Then Jesus has come in time and he's merited your true prayer. And he sent his spirit into your heart. The spirit works through you, in you, moves you to groan with groanings that are unutterable. And that prayer goes back up to Jesus for you pray in Jesus' name, don't you? goes up to Jesus, 
And Jesus sanctifies it, assaults it with assault and sanctification of his own sufferings, and then he presents it back to the Father. Well-pleasing in the Father's sight, despite your prayer's insufficiencies. And the Father answers it in accord with his sovereign time and his sovereign way. Now, John Owen called that, a big word, the doctrine of appropriations. And what he meant by that, he wrote a 400-page book on it, actually. He meant to say we have distinct communion with all three persons of the Trinity at times in our prayers. And he gave examples of when to pray directly to the Holy Spirit, especially when you, you feel like you, you're not able to groan those groanings. You say, Spirit of God, teach me to pray. Move within me. Other times, you might feel like you've come to the end of your own prayers and your only hope is that Jesus is interceding for you. You might say, oh, Lord Jesus, I, I cannot pray. I can barely get the word Lord out. I'm in such distress. But do thou intercede with the Father for me. And other times, you go directly to the Father and say, hear my cries. So what Owen is saying is that you go to the triune God you take hold of each person of the Trinity and you take hold of the Trinity as a whole. And he bases his whole book on 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, in this way, through prayer, we get a more intimate acquaintance of each person of the Trinity. And that is exceedingly sweet to the believer. And then third, to, 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 to lay hold of God, we need to lay hold peculiarly of Christ's intercession. Christ's intercession. Now what do I mean by that? Well, there's no doctrine that has been so precious to me in the last couple years of my life as, as this doctrine. I've been reading a lot about it. We just published Anthony Burgess's. It's out of print already, but we'll do it again. Uh, 145 sermons on Christ's intercessory prayer. About 1,000 pages on one chapter, John 17. And uh, he has a long section in there about intercession. It's just exceedingly precious. And uh, Thomas Goodwin has this wonderful book called Christ's Beautiful Heart in Heaven Toward His People on Earth. And he's arguing in the book that it's actually better to have Christ in heaven interceding for us than to have him on earth standing right beside us. And what's so beautiful about this is that when you lay hold of Christ's intercession, it changes your whole life, just like it does when you realize you're adopted by the Father. It changes every, every aspect of your life, doesn't it? Because now... I am a child of the Father, and now the believers are my brothers and sisters, and now the world hates me, and I shouldn't be surprised by the animosity of the world. And, and, and now I have an inheritance coming. I mean, it changes everything. But so does Christ's intercession. Because Hebrews 7.25 says, Burgess puts it this way, He ever liveth to make intercession for us means ever liveth, means that every single second 
He who has infinite capacities, not only remembering his invisible church all over the world as a whole, but every single second, he has the capacity to remember millions upon millions of his people at the same time. And he's praying for you every single second of your life. Do you understand what, how that could revolutionize your prayer life? How it could calm your fears? He's praying for me now, 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 now. And oh, how dare I sin against him when he's praying for me at the same moment. Oh Lord, help me to hate sin more. Help me to love my great high priest more. Help me to walk in his ways more. Take hold of his intercession. And then, last point. When you pray, believe. You take hold of God when you believe that God actually answers prayer. You know, I know if you have this problem, but I pray and then I, I'm surprised when he answers. I mean, that's crazy, right? If you believe in God, you should believe, you should expect God to answer. Not because of anything you, but because of his son. Well, you heard the story about a, a man who, I suppose, who, who built a tavern next door to a church. And there were wild parties, late night hours, sinful indulgences. And there was morning garbage from the bar that was so distressful on a church parking lot every Sunday morning that finally the pastor spoke to the man, but nothing changed. And finally the pastor said to the congregation, we're going to have to pray that the Lord intervenes in this situation. And a few weeks later, the Lord sent a tornado to that town. And the tornado wiped out the tavern completely. It was gone. And the church was untouched. So the tavern owner, who was an atheist, took the church to court. <laughs> and the judge said, this is the strangest case I ever heard. Because the tavern owner said, these people destroyed my building with their prayers. And the church people said, we didn't touch your building. We didn't do anything. And the judge said, this is really odd. The atheists believing in prayer and the believers not believing in prayer. <laughs> I do find a little comfort from this in this. You remember the servant girl that opened the door and Peter was standing there? Or, or oh, she kept the door shut. She, was just, she saw Peter there. And she says, Peter's here. But they had just been praying that the angel would or that Peter would somehow get released, you see. And she was surprised. We are too often surprised. We should expect great things from a great God. You believe him when you take hold of him. You believe when you pray for that unconverted, wandering, covenant child in your family that has gone far from the truth. You believe that God is able to bring him back. When you pray, this should encourage you. Take hold of God. With man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, take hold of yourself. Take hold of God. And believe that God will answer your prayers. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much. That thou art a God, a Father, a Son, a Spirit, who delights to hear the cries of thy people. Thou hast said that thou wilt hear the needy when they cry. And Lord, we are needy. We are so needy every day. 
We need thy help. We need thy wisdom. We need thy forgiveness. We need thy consoling grace. Come and bless us and turn us to thee and make us prayer warriors that Satan can no longer sleep beside our prayers because our prayers will be like missiles sent to heaven rather than just toys of prayerlessness that he can sleep beside. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how to take the kingdom of heaven by violence, for the violent take it by force. Teach us to command thee concerning the things of thy hands, as thou hast invited us to do, that thou wouldst no more have to complain about us, that we don't take hold of thee the way that thou hadst to complain about Israel. Oh God, help us, help us to truly pray in our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.